drinking old lady at a red light. Pull a gun on the owner of a liquor store. You think it's cool, act a fool if you like. Cuss out a cop, spit in his face. Stomp on the flag and light it up. Yeah, you think it's tough. Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined by my co-host and star of this show, Kevin Kernan, America's most beloved sports writer. This is episode 279 for us. This is the Coach and Kernan show, our flagship show on the network. Before we bring in Kevin and actually our special guest today, I just want to thank our audience here, getting us to 50,000 subscribers. Uh, we're very fortunate that you gave us enough push to where we're now the newest streaming platform. Or we have the newest streaming platform of iHeartRadio. Uh, we're the newest podcast network on there. So that's thanks to you. Keep supporting us after this show. Make sure you give Kevin five stars, send a nice note on there. And if you have questions you want us to cover, write that in the notes as well. Uh, we, we look forward to feedback from our audience. 74 countries now, grassroots MLB front offices, just trying to build a better baseball IQ out there and bring some awareness to, to what's going on in the baseball world and certainly parallels to life. And Kevin brings that about in his stories every week with Ball Nine. Keep supporting our brothers there. But uh, Kevin had a couple of smash hits this week, uh, again, with Ball Nine and the stories you wrote. And uh, welcome back to your show. Great to be back, Dave. Yeah, I think your uh, your, your article, your last article, I, I wrote a note on it on Facebook. I, I think you, you nailed it with there's an assault on meritocracy out there. Uh, we've lowered the bar so much in life and in baseball. And I think you uh, brought a great awareness to it in your last article. Yeah, I try not, you know, I don't want to always write like um, negative things because I write some positive things, but the way the game is it, and the way they, you know, what the nerds have done to the game is really a disgrace. And we see it every day in different ways. And, you know, the last time, uh, the last article was, it's now or never, never, where I basically said Elvis has left the building because there's so many things going on. And I highlighted three things. Of course, um, you know, um, George Kirby was one of those three where he just, yes. you know, couldn't go after 90 pitches. The manager should have taken him out. And um, I'll get back to that in a second. And then before that was Mount Chum, you know, the, the, the position player pitching four innings when rosters are expanded. I think what we're seeing really, and I'll boil it down, we'll get right to our guest, but we're just seeing a, um, a softness. In, in Major League Baseball, not all, you know, there's some great guys that really battle through things, but the other ones are getting, they're getting too much attention now. And there's a softness in the game created by the softness of what they do with not, not stretching pitchers out, all the things we talk about all the time and Jim Cott, our buddy and things like that. So the softness in the game is really so bad now. They don't realize it, but, they're losing the game to the fans. They're going to find other things to do. And now it's NFL season, so that's already started. But it, the game is so soft. I just saw today, I think Alec, Alec Manoa didn't even show up for his AAA assignment. And with that, I'm going to just uh, throw it back to you and our guest because I do have one. I'm, I'm going to – you can just uh, lead this in with our guest, but – I'd like to know what the 1993 Phillies would have said to George Kirby. I'll leave it at that. Yeah, I think uh, <laughs> with, our, with our guest say he's going to have a lot to say about the Phillies. Um, I'll introduce <clears> our <throat> guest with that. And, and please, our audience, continue to support Ball 9 and especially Kevin's articles. Every week, you won't be disappointed. It'll, it'll 
if you got nothing going on during the week, this will be your your caffeine. It'll jack you right up. But uh, with our guest today now, 50-year odyssey in, in baseball, uh, wonderful stories. In, in my mind, as we, we connected for this show, I liken him to the, the old board game, Seven Degrees of Separation with Kevin Bacon. He's the Kevin Bacon of baseball. He's connected to half of our guests. Um, we, we've gone through stories on those off the air. But started out as a bat boy, uh, like our guest last week, Ray Negron. A different start, but bat boy nonetheless. And um, 50 plus years, ending with a 30 year run with the Philadelphia Phillies, as, as Kevin mentioned right here. And with that, uh, I won't I won't give any of the the uh, stories away because I want to I want to touch on those as we go. But with that, uh, just want to welcome welcome to our guests today, Frank Kopenberger. Frank, welcome to our show, buddy. Ah, welcome indeed. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity to be on with you guys. Yep, and we, we were thankful that you're playing hurt today. I know uh, just had a knee knee replacement, but you're you're propped up and and ready to ready to do to talk about soft with baseball. Frank's certainly not soft playing hurt <laughs> with, with a knee injury today. So, Frank, thanks so much. And um, why don't why don't we get to Kevin? You want let's ha- let's answer Kevin's question first. He, he talked about his articles and. And the uh, a little bit of the softness of baseball. And Kevin, do you want to re re ask that, or do you want just Frank to go with that? Yeah, Frank, go with it. What would the Phillies say to uh, Kurt if one of their young, really talented starting pitchers just said, "You know what? The manager left me in after 90, 90 pitchers, and uh, you know, Fergosi left me in, so that's on him, basically." And uh, well, what, what would the reaction be? That ninety three team, they would have had plenty to say about it to the teammate, it wouldn't have been good. Uh, he'd have been pretty ostracized, I have a feeling, by that group. that They were anything but soft. Uh, yeah. they, they, they were pretty hardcore guys, and uh, they were like the old Oakland Raiders of football. They were that kind of team in baseball, and there was no, no softness around that clubhouse, that's for sure. You know, the likes of what Darren Dalton, Lenny Dykstra, John Crook, all sitting in that that little circle. But um, well, you, you, you've you've run across some great great people in baseball in your time, and I, I kind of want to. I'm just going to throw names at you during during uh, my segment and let you tell your stories because I don't think I do it justice by asking questions. But you started off when you were just a fifth grader, 1967, as a bat boy. Um, going to throw a name at you and show you how the world baseball world comes full circle. Charlie Manuel. <laughs> well, yeah, that's the that's one of the main stories I like to tell. Uh, uh, I started off as a bat boy. I was, a, as you said, a 11 year old fifth grader uh, back in my hometown of Decatur, Illinois. And uh, back then in the uh, 60s, we had a minor league team of the San Francisco Giants, uh, a class A team in the Midwest League. And I got an opportunity to be the bat boy there uh, one summer. And uh, the very first game I ever worked on the field, uh, we played a team called the Wisconsin Rapids Twins, which was a Minnesota farm club. We lost opening day by a score of five to four. Uh, the The guy went four for five and hit a home run to beat us. The big star of the game was Charlie Manuel. What well, didn't mean a whole lot to me when I was, you know, 11 years old. And the only reason I even knew about it was my father had compiled a scrapbook 
from what he thought would be my my only season doing something like this and my life experience you know around a baseball team little did he know that I'd be doing it for the next 50 some years but anyway Charlie hit a homer and went four for five on opening day and 41 years later we're standing next to each other about to about to win the 2008 World Series. Came full circle, and your dad kept a scrapbook for you. What he, he thought did. He, what, one year in baseball was going to be? He in thought I'd just do it for that summer, and then that would be the end of something like that. And and uh, I'm glad he didn't make one every year because we wouldn't have room for him here at the house. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, I brought that book in and showed it to Charlie, and he – he knew the pitcher. He could describe the pitcher uh, physically and and everything. You know, fifty years later, by that point, by the time I showed the book to Charlie, so uh, it was it was a pretty crazy story to start out. And just for our audience, you know, you went from Bat Boy, and as you got back in the game, you became a clubhouse director and then traveling secretary down the road. So you've you've worn many hats in baseball. I'll throw another name at you here, Joe Madden. <laughs> All right. Well, Joe and I were together in Salinas, California, in the California League, an Angels Farm Club back in 1978. Uh, he was our backup catcher, super guy, still is, very interesting person. Uh, the thing most notable about Joe from that year was he was a the only guy on the team that knew how to cook anything. So instead of uh, going to McDonald's, if you got invited to Joe's house, you were actually going to get a home cooked meal. So he would, uh, he would bake these lasagnas from scratch and he knew how to do all this because his mother, Joe grew up in Hazleton, Pennsylvania, and his mother worked in a, in a restaurant for basically her whole life. And she taught him how to cook. So he would make these lasagnas from scratch. And then he'd invite some guys over and say, all right, you bring the soda, you bring the beer, you bring a salad. And, you know, we'd go there for dinner after a game. And before we could eat, he'd pull the lasagnas out of the oven and he'd take a photo of them with a Polaroid camera. And then the the little white strip at the bottom of those photos he would write the date and who was there for dinner. And he kept those in a photo album. And a few years ago, I asked him about that book. And he says, I still have those books, believe it or not. (laughs) Any any other notable characters there that that our audience would know? Well, the manager was a a guy that um, was really good to me and and my – in my baseball life and, and, and kind of got me uh, moved along into a little bit more of a full-time job. Uh, We were actually together the year before in quad cities in the Midwest league. His name is Chuck was Chuck Cottier. And he was a long time uh, major league player, uh, a utility guy, mostly. And then he um, later on years later, he, he was a, a coach for many years and also managed the Seattle Mariners for a couple years. And then, you know, like you say, full circle stuff, 
I ended up having a slight hand in him coming back to Philadelphia as a as a coach and mentor to Terry Francona when Lee Thomas, our general manager, hired Terry in, in Philadelphia to be our manager. So all from a lasagna dinner, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. And uh, you know, I think what what uh, Dave probably wants me to tell at the story, uh, and I'll go back up a little bit to Quad Cities years. Back then in the low minor leagues, you had a manager. Very few teams even had one coach. And the manager threw all the batting practice. So I was pretty young. I was only 21 years old. And and I had played some summer ball a couple years before that. So I used to help him throw batting practice and, and hit ground balls, the infielders, and fly balls, the outfielders. Uh, when I could, when I could get out there to do that, I would help out during BP. So one day I'm standing behind the cage and Cotier says, Hey, grab a bat, get in there and take a couple swings. So I did. And I squared up a couple and he was, he was impressed, very surprised and impressed. So every, every now and then he'd let me hit. And so our pitchers would hit in the games back in those days. So he would say, all right, we're going to have a, a contest, a pitcher's hitting, and uh, the losing team buys the Cokes for the winning team. Well, if we only had nine pitchers, they needed a 10th guy, you know, so it would be five aside. I'd get recruited into playing on, on one of those pitcher's team sides. And I didn't think anything of it. It was kind of fun. The next year we go to Salinas together. And he said, did you ever want to play pro ball? And I said, well, yeah, I think anybody, you know, every kid always wanted to play pro ball, but I knew a long time ago that was never going to happen for me. He goes, you're going to play this year. And I looked at him like he was crazy. And he said, I'm telling you, before the year is over with, you're going to play. And on the last game of the season, they signed me to a one-day contract, and I – I batted in the first inning as DH against the Lodi Dodgers in Salinas, California. And uh, I struck out, but my name's in baseball reference. I did foul a couple off, which I was proud to say. And I was a little disappointed that the pitcher threw the clubhouse manager a curveball to get him out, but he did. So anyway, uh, the, the funny part about that, that night was that I hit third and Joe Madden hit seventh. So I've never let Joe let, you know, live that down. That's great. That's uh, everybody wants that one at bat and you can always yeah. tell that. And I can still see it, you know, all these years later. The, uh, if I've got another, another name for you, a guest on our show, very well-respected baseball executive out there. Share with us how Mike Port had a hand in your, growth in your career? Well, those those uh, years with the Angels in the minor leagues, the second year I was over there in, in that organization in 78, they uh, got rid of the farm director and quite a few player uh, coaches and managers, not players, and uh, basically kind of changed the, uh, the landscape over there. And Mike Port came in as the minor league director. So he was 
he was actually my boss in 1978, and you had him on your show. And, uh, you know, he was a good mentor for me. And, you know, some other people you've had on your show by besides uh, Mike, uh, I listened one day and actually a couple times you had Leo Mazzoni on there. Yep. And uh, Leo was a pitcher on our team back in Decatur in my second year in 1968. So you just, you know, after you're around for a while, you just – Seem to know everybody, it seems like. Well, give us a Leo story. Well, short guy. He was a big Yankee fan when he grew up. Loved the Yankees. And he was he was a ball of fire, just like he still is, and sounds on you know, on the uh on your show. But very small in stature, but a bulldog. Absolutely a bulldog as a pitcher. I've, I've got I've got one more name, Tim. We haven't even touched on the 30 years uh, with the Phillies, so I know Kevin will probably have a, a ton on those. But last show, uh, our last week's show with Coach and Kerner, we had Ray Negron on. And uh, ironically, started out as a bat boy, too, and had a connection with Jim Cott. And he told us a story about Jim Cott being the greatest disco dancer he ever saw in a baseball game. <laughs> So I know you had some some uh, connections with Jim Cott as well. And I, when I text Jim, when you you guys I think were up um, together recently, or he 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 made the trip up that way to be to, in Philly, uh, yes. Yep. And I said, Frank said hi. I didn't even have to put a last name. Frank said hi, and he goes, "That's one of the best guys I've met in baseball, and has been a fantastic friend for well over twenty five years." So it made longer me longer than that. He's yeah. getting old. He can't remember how long. <laughs> yeah, on that. I, I, uh, but give, give us, give us a Jim, give us a Jim Cott story that we wouldn't know about. Well, I got two or three of those and I think they're all pretty good. But, uh, as far as the dancing part, uh, I want to add that Ray Negron, we did start the same way. He started at Yankee stadium. I, I started at a place called fans field, a rundown old wooden ballpark in Decatur, Illinois. But, uh, his story is, is tremendous. And I'm going to catch up and listen to him on your show. But uh, Jim Cott, I met when I got to St. Louis. So from from my Angels years, I got a chance to go over. The Cardinals put a AAA team 30 miles from my hometown in, in Springfield, Illinois. And uh, so I ended up getting an opportunity to work over there and uh, – the first year I was there, and probably the reason that the team, that the local team hired me there was a guy by the name of Jimmy Williams, who was a longtime big league manager of the Red Sox and the Astros and the Toronto Blue Jays. Jimmy had been the manager, the AAA manager for the Angels, and he was one of those guys that was let go from the regime before Mike Port started. So Jimmy ended up getting the job in, in Springfield, Illinois, introduced me to the owner there, A. Ray Smith, a longtime uh, baseball operator. And uh, that's how I ended up going over to St. Louis. But fast forward three years later, I get up to St. Louis and, and Cott's one of the players on the team. And uh, when he talked about the dancing, 
you know, Cott didn't run. The pitchers would run, but he had his own routine. He would come early in the morning and he'd ride the exercise bike in the clubhouse. And it was so funny. I'd be in the clubhouse putting laundry away and things like that. And and he'd throw in a chew and get on the bike and start running. And he'd say, I'm going to take a ride out to Creve Coeur. Well, for those of you that don't know, Creve Coeur is a suburb of St. Louis. So I don't know why he chose Creve Coeur, but he got on that bike and, you know, we'd talk and he'd, he'd ride and then he'd, he'd get off and shower and go and, and uh, eat lunch somewhere. Cause we didn't have food in the clubhouse back in those days. And he'd come back and then, you know, after BP, the pitchers always ran, but he didn't run. And he'd say, I did my, I do my running at night. So there was this nightclub across the river from Bush Stadium in St. Louis. And a lot of us frequented that place after the games. And I would get over there, you know, after I got done with my work. And often I would pull in the parking lot and there would be Jim Cott in the, in getting in his car, taking his sweaty dress shirt off and changing his shirt in the parking lot to go back in and do some more dancing. He had already sweated through one and putting on another <laughs> right out in the parking lot. And he would dance. He'd dance in there until they closed the place. And he was amazing. And I'll tell you another funny story on Kitty. A um, couple more. He, uh, we were going to play one year in spring training. It was 83 season. Uh, James Madison University wasn't a scheduled game, but the coach of James Madison reached out to Whitey Herzog and said, asked if they could use one of our minor league fields to practice, that they were going to be coming down to the St. Pete area. And uh, they they wanted to get some practice in, wanted to know if the Cardinals would be kind enough to let them borrow a field. And he said, you know, I got some guys that need some work. How about if we have a game? So, of course, they're not going to turn that down. So we don't think anything of it. They're going to show up, you know, play a game, and the situation will be controlled somehow. And I can still hear Cotton in the clubhouse the day before that game. Boy, there's going to be some college kids call home tomorrow and tell their tell their mom and dad they they saw what a big league curveball was going to look like because Kitty was pitching against James Madison. He's going to throw an inning. So next day, I don't think anything of it. Two buses pull up, one with James Madison team and the other one full of all their parents cheerleading. So this became way more of a game than I think the Cardinals thought it was going to be. And I'm out there cleaning shoes after the, the big league workout. Now they're getting ready to go out and start this game. And I'm hearing the metal bat pinging, ping, and all these fans cheering. And it kept going on and on. So I decided to go out and see for myself. And those James Madison boys were having their way with Kitty. <laughs> Roughing him up pretty good. <laughs> and he, he came in after his inning, and he I was still out there working, and he goes, those kids are pretty good. <laughs> I just kept walking, you know. So that one, uh, and then uh, near the end there of his, his Cardinal years, uh, 
we would joke with him all the time about, you know, how much longer can you possibly last? Because that's pretty unheard of for a guy his age to be pitching. And so we got a pool together one year in spring training of when he'd get released. So we had like day before the season, you know, Memorial Day, whatever. He picked the all-star break. He had his own chance in the pool. There was four of us in the pool, three clubhouse guys and Kitty. We all put in like 50 bucks or something. Kitty won the pool. He got within two days of it. Yeah. He, he, he shared that with me off the air. I, I, yes. only, only in a clubhouse could you do something like that. <laughs> and laugh about it. Right, and, and HR and I get on somebody. Oh, they didn't have HR in those days. That was that <laughs> you were HR. Hadn't yeah. been invented yet. You had your clubhouse court to handle all that stuff, but uh, right. I got, I, and I'll, 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 I'm sure we'll get to this with, with uh, later in the questions. But um, I, we have Wes Helms coming on one of our shows later today with Man on Second, and he gave me permission to let you tell an unbridled story about him. So I'll ask it. But the the caveat is he gets to tell a Frank Kopenbarger story. He said on the show later on. So oh my god, I hope it's good. I don't know. We'll see. But without pass it over to you, Kevin. Well, it's great stuff. And of course, you can go on forever with Frank. And uh, actually, I want to take before we go any further, I because I, I, I remember this night, um, 1993, July 2nd, the bet, a doubleheader, the most, one of the most unusual ones of all time. Tell us about that night, Frank. And, uh, you know, uh, I think I was, uh, I think the game ended, the second game ended at 440 in the morning, but I was there That's- and uh, it was quite a night. That's correct. Yeah, they, uh, we had a lot of rain. Play in San Diego. Had a ton of rain. And, uh, in fact, it was a doubleheader, and the second game of the doubleheader didn't even start until 1.30 a.m. Right. So the funny part about that night was, you know, they – and back in those days, I don't even know if they do this anymore. After the seventh inning, they just opened the gates, and people could just come in and watch the last inning or two. So the the game, you know, it's a, it's a traditional doubleheader, but the second game starts at 1.30 in the morning. Well, by the time all the bars closed in Philadelphia, our game's like in the third inning of the second game. All these people start coming into the ballpark that had been in the bars just to see this spectacle unfolding. And uh, it was crazy. And the game ends on a base hit by Mitch Williams, a relief pitcher, at 4.40 in the morning. Unbelievable. Yeah, you know, it, yeah it came it, up with it, Trevor it, Hoffman, if I remember. I, You may be right. <laughs> I don't remember that part. I was just glad somebody got a hit, you know. Well, I was covering yeah. the pod- Padres then, so. Okay. Know. That was absolutely crazy. And they, it'll never happen again because they've got rules in place against all that now. But exactly because the umpires ran the show, and um, yeah, they you know I think uh, Pancino was the home plate umpire. I, I can't imagine how many loads of wash he did doing that. Oh yeah, and and they had to do it quick because we had a game the next night. Exactly. We so got, did, did you stay in the clubhouse that night, or did you go? No, home? there was a old Holiday Inn across from the ballpark. Oh yeah, yep. And yeah, and uh, I called and got a couple rooms over there for for my crew, and we went over there and and 
I think we walked out of the clubhouse at seven in the morning. Sun was bright as could be, hot as all get out. And we went over to the Holiday Inn and slept like four hours. And then we had to get back because we had a night game the next night. Yeah. And the thing I remember besides, you know, the craziness of the game and Harry Callis doing a great time uh, with the play-by-play and playing with the fans. And like you said, the bars emptied out. So it was a very rowdy crowd at that point. And, um, but I remember, and this shows you about, uh, you know, uh, what it's like uh, in, in some ways being a major league player. So I followed the bus, uh, you know, I followed Tony Gwynn out. I think Tony had an injury and didn't play in the second game. Something was up. I forget what it was. But Tony did not play in the second game, so I had to wait for him. And I was on deadline on the West Coast team at, uh, at this point. Wow. But yeah, that, that tells you about that. But after I filed, I, I walked out to the bus with Tony, and um, I'll never forget, there were a bunch of, uh, you know, autograph people waiting wait for Tony at 5 o'clock in the morning at the bus. <laughs> Only in Philadelphia. Only in Philadelphia. And also, my second, I, and you made me think of it just now, uh, my second Philadelphia, only in Philadelphia type story is uh, Randy Myers, when he was with the Padres, we're out by the bus, and he's um, a fan comes up to him with a, a baseball card of him being, I don't know, it might have been a Reds card or whatever, wanted him to sign it, a collector, obviously, or whatever. Randy took the card and cut and ripped it in half because he refused to sign any cards that were not the team he was playing for at the time so uh just a little just a little aside you also had some of that characters uh lenny dystra i mean you know i know lenny well and you know he's uh he's he's uh you know he's a load he's a load he, you know he, he, i'm not sure what were some of his special things regarding uh you know clubhouse wise what what you had to have for lenny to keep him uh on the straight and narrow well, I used to joke that there's 20, at that time there were 25 players on the team and and the rest of the clubhouse crew took care of the other 24 and I I had a full-time job taking care of Lenny. He was he was one of the most he probably was the most unique player that I ever had. He he was fanatical about stuff. Like he's the only player I ever knew that wanted a new batting helmet. There were players that would wear those for three or four years. They would, you'd have to practically hide them from them and give them a new one after a while. Cause they'd get broken in and fit them a certain way. Well, if Lenny went in a slump, he'd just throw his helmet in the trash and get a new one. He'd want a new one. And often, uh, Ruben Amaro told this story on, uh, MLB Network recently, uh, if Lenny started the game and made an out, and he was always leading off, if he made an out, he'd come in and take off absolutely everything he had on and throw it in the trash. Everything. I'm talking about spikes, socks, underwear, uniform pants, jersey, undershirts, everything right in the trash. And spit tobacco juice all over it. Ugh. So, you know, then he'd get another uniform out and go back out on the field. And then I'd have to di- dive in the trash can and get it out, get all that out and get it cleaned up and 
stick it back in his locker, you know. He well, was something else. There's a possi- possibility he could have wore the same uniform twice in one game if uh, you had to clean quick enough. Yeah, it's possible. Absolutely. He he um, he used to wear one a different pair of batting gloves every at bat. And then one one year he they had all these different color combinations. He he wore Franklin batting gloves, and they had like all red and and white and red and gray and red and red and blue. You know all these combinations. Well, what the problem with that was with Lenny is if he got if he had a game or, good game or two, and they, let's say he's using red or blue batting gloves then that's the only kind he wanted. And he wanted he wanted four pair of those on his chair every day when he got to the ballpark with his number four on it. And, you know, back then we used markers, and then now they got their names embroidered on them and everything else. But only I was allowed to put my four on there, none of the other clubhouse guys, only me. So he was so superstitious it had to be a certain four. Absolutely. Wow. And uh, in, in fact, just to slightly get off the story, I took my son up to Cooperstown some years ago, and and we were fortunate enough to go downstairs with Jeff Idelson, and he opened up the big bat cabinet. It's like an entire wall full of bats, and he's showing my son Babe Ruth's bat and Hank Aaron's bat and, you know, all these things. And and it's just Jeff, my son, and I. And I said, hey, Jeff, what's that bat up on the top there with a four on it? And he got on a stool and went up there and pulled it down. And he's still standing on the stool, and he looks at the bat, the name on the bat. He goes, how did you know that? I go, <laughs> it haunts me in the middle of the night. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, only one Lenny Dykstra, as you well know. And he also, one other character that I knew well, because he came from the team I was covering, you know. I remember one time, myself and Bob Nightingale, we were, you know, we were staying in the same hotel, and we got back from working late. Not as late as you, but we, we worked late. Players never really understood that. They, they thought the stories would just Im- immediately appear um, after the game. And... Um, so we, I think, uh, yeah, we're in it. So we're getting in a hotel uh, elevator about two o'clock in the morning, and uh, who comes in but John Cruck with a pizza and uh, some other stuff, you know, at <laughs> two o'clock in the morning. So you got to have some John Cruck stuff for it. Oh yeah, well, he's great material for all that. <laughs> he, uh, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm going to tell you the, the probably the best one of Cruck was. I'll tell you a couple of them. He would sleep over on Saturday night. And back then at the veteran stadium, you know, we didn't spend any money as an organization on furniture in the clubhouse and things like that. I mean, you know, we were getting, you know, sofas from like yard sales, you know, and things like that. We had a, we had a video room that I don't know if I would have sat on that couch wearing a rain suit. But Cruck used to sleep on that thing on Saturday nights. Oh. And he'd get up and then he'd go in the I'd see him go in the food room and he'd get out like three or four hot dogs, put them in the microwave and, and make four hot dogs and 
pour mayonnaise all over them and eat them. And he'd get three or four hits about five hours later. He'd, he'd get three or four hits. I mean, he was a, he was something else. But the uh, one year at the end of the year, we're cleaning out his locker. And we came across some interesting things. I, we found a check from Franklin Batting Gloves for $20,000 that he, he forgot about. Twenty grand <laughs> for uh, you know endorsement money. He just lost it in his locker somewhere. His locker was a rat's nest. Now his locker was right next to Lenny Dykstra's, and Lenny Dykstra looked like an absolute pig pen on the field. He had the neatest locker of any player I've ever known. I remember that. I remember that. His locker yep. was immaculate, but you wouldn't believe it to see him in his uniform. You know, a few hours later, but. But Cruck, there was nothing immaculate about Cruck. So that same day, we found a, a check for twenty grand. We also found, uh, which is the most surprising thing to me, that there was anything left over, half of an uneaten cheesesteak that looked like it was maybe from May or June. <laughs> oh, that's buried in his locker somewhere. Yeah, he just, uh, you probably had two of them and forgot the other half of the other one. Right. I agree. Yeah. And the other thing about, I always loved going to Philly. Uh, even when I came back to the New York Post, you know, I spent a lot of time down there, obviously, with the Mets and everything and Yankees and World Series. And, uh, but it's such a great, I always felt it was a great organization because it was a people oriented organization. That, that was my read from the outside. And and you had guys like Lee Thomas, you know. I knew Lee. Lee was a good man, and that was that's just something that happened organically with the Phillies. Why they just seemed, you know, the people in the food room were nice. Everybody was nice with the Phillies when I covered them. Now they didn't make our job easy as writers because you know that team was tough on writers. Oh yeah, and you know I'm good friends with uh, you know a lot of those guys: George King, Salisbury. Yeah, uh, you know, well, King King used to cover us back then. Yes, yes, he was there first, and uh, yeah. and then uh, you know uh, Hagen and uh, what, oh, what yeah, was it all about? Those guys. Yeah, what was it about the organization that made it different in a way? Well, Bill Giles and David Montgomery. That's the two names I can give you that I can say were absolutely responsible for that 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 culture and that feeling. Uh, no two finer guys than that. Uh, David Montgomery knew everyone in the organization, knew your wife's name or your husband's name, whatever the case might have been. He knew your kids' names. And I'm, you know, I'm thinking, man, I want to put the players' names on the front of the uniform so I know the players' names. He was amazing at his recall and he would know he would know things about the players. He would and I mean good things. Like anytime they a player had a charity event, they were always on off days or after a Sunday game. David and his wife Lynn and, and Bill and Nancy Giles were always there. They supported all that stuff for all the guys. They were very pro player, but they were also it was a, a family operation. You know, they that's uh, maybe been lost a little bit since uh, David uh, passed away and and Bill uh, you no longer in, in his position. But uh, uh, 
it was definitely they are the reason for that. Yeah, that makes sense. It was, uh, you know, made it a kind of a mom and pop. And, and I think as a result, they, you know, they, they, they had players that kind of really, you know, no matter how they look, uh, you know, sometimes like a Lenny or whatever, they really, you know, very professional about their jobs. I, I, in San Diego, I was able to coach a little bit in little league. He was on the other teams, but doing all stars and things like that. But I was able to coach a, a young kid named Cole Hamels. And, oh, yeah. Uh, you know, and actually, my son Casey hit a homer call. That was pretty cool. In little, yeah. Uh, and uh, but Cole, talk about classy people. Uh, how, how was your relationship with Cole? Outstanding. Mm. I mean, what a solid guy. I mean, I knew him since the day he got drafted out of high school. And you know, he and I, I called him a couple of weeks ago when when he you know had to officially retire and. And I said to him, I said, I the one regret I have with you, when Tony Gwynn passed away, Cole was pitching for us that night in Atlanta. And I approached Cole about wearing Anthony or Tony Jr.'s jersey because he was a player on our team then, uh, Tony's son. And, and, and that was the only time Anthony wore number 19 in his entire career that he got to wear his dad's number was with Philadelphia. And I said to Cole, I said, I got this idea. What do you think? Would you want to wear, you know, Anthony's Jersey with Gwen 19 when you pitch tonight? Absolutely. Didn't hesitate. Absolutely. Wow. He goes, I grew up playing, playing ball with, with, you know, with Anthony and, uh, I made the mistake of asking permission instead of just doing it, and I really regret doing it. Oh, that. yeah, the league wouldn't let it? No, they stopped it. Yeah. And you know what? They, they would have been mad, but it would have been a heck of a good uh, tribute for a San Diego kid to do that for Tony Gwynn. would have uh, been pretty special. That would have been great. And, uh, you know, like you always say, it's always easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. Yeah, yeah. But, you you know, anyway, we were just talking about the other day, but Cole, Cole's a special guy. You're a really nice guy, always has been. Never let the success, you know, change him at all. Good to the people around here. Very, uh, you know, community-minded person, uh, charitable. Uh, I can't say anything but good things about Cole. That's great to hear, and and because we we have we meet so many young people as well, uh, you know, I think leadership is a big part of the game. We talked a little bit about it earlier, but uh, I, I think you had one of the great leaders in, in Darren Dalton. Just give us a little glimpse of what he was like to be around. Oh, yeah. Well, when he walked in the room, you knew it. He, <laughs> he had this unbelievable presence about him. I mean, the guy looked like a movie star. He had muscles on top of muscles, you know, a, a, a smile like no other. And, uh, but I'll tell you what, he could be tough if he needed to be. And, and he ran that team, Mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, and Fregosi wanted him to run that team. And so he was a zookeeper, if you want to call it that, (laughs) but, uh, and he ran that, that team, but he was, a, a. will tell you what, I really grew to love that guy. You know, when I came from, St. Louis to Philly, he wasn't that good of a player. Right. And, uh, you know, he was kind of just hanging on around that time. 
And uh, he made himself a good player. He made himself an all-star. You know, and he ended up getting a, winning a World Series with the Marlins after he left Philly in his final year. And uh, that 93 team in Philadelphia is is probably as popular as the 2008 World Champs. I mean, I, I the, the fans just gravitate to those guys. Even, we had a reunion a cup maybe three weeks ago, and you know it, the 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 uh, the reception that the fans gave those guys is amazing. But well, they, I think they they were kind of like uh, they could relate. They were very relatable, right? Oh I, yeah, yeah. Well, you know they're they're regular guys. Like I said, you know, there's John Crook's not in a fine steakhouse, you know, with a five hundred dollar bottle of wine. He's eating a cheesesteak, you know, at a out of a paper wrapper over on the corner somewhere. That's, that's, you know, I mean, they were those kind of guys that they weren't always like they were all they weren't always in shape like Darren Dalton. They had a lot of different shapes and sizes on that team. And they can relate. The fans of Philadelphia especially can relate to that group. Well, I think you're seeing a little bit, too, with this. I, I really like this year's team in a lot of ways, too. I mean, they have their faults, but they they, they, they seem to pull for each other, you know, in some exactly. way. Exactly. You know, I don't know them. Yeah. I, I watch them on TV. I've been to the ballpark four or five times, but you can tell they like each other and they pull for each other. And it's going to help them. Yeah, that's that's a big thing. The other thing I wanted to touch base with you on was um, Clearwater was always one of my favorite spots, if not my favorite, to go to in spring training. You know, both because again, I was I was out in Arizona for years with the Padres. I mean, I, I actually started in Yuma, and um, but Clearwater is a special spring training site. Give us some thoughts about Clearwater because that's that that had to be you spent a lot of your life in Clearwater. Spent a lot of my life there and still spend a lot of my life there. My wife and I have a home there as well, and uh, we love it, and we get there whenever we can, and uh, we just love the place. It's a beautiful uh, beach, one of the best in the country. Um, they love the Phillies there. Uh, we were so blessed to, when we, you know, when we would go on the road in those Grapefruit League games, and you go to some towns, you know, and I don't want to, you know, trash a town, but there were there'll be some towns that you'd go and you'd think, man, we get to go back to Clearwater. The other team, they have to stay here tonight, you know. This is where they are for six or seven weeks, and we we were we were lucky. And then when we got our new ballpark in Clearwater, it it just changed everything. I mean, it ended up it was and it's still one of the better ones, and it's absolutely it's now twenty years old. Yeah, and and uh, you know they came up, I think, you know, with the uh, the tiki bar first and things like yes. that. And it's yes, uh, they did. And again, the, the people they hired, you know, even security. You go to some of these spring training things, and it's like, uh, you know, my gosh, you know, you, you can't go anywhere. But the, even if they got to do their job, they they still do the the, the people in in Clearwater. They, they treat you right. Just like I was yeah. saying earlier, I don't know if you had the same food service, but for us the in the media, the best, we always loved going to Philly because the, the Philly media food service was, was the best in baseball. And again, in I guess Philly or in Clearwater? What's that? <clears throat> Excuse me. You talking about in Philly or in Clearwater? In Philly, it was the best for us. 
for like eating and friendly people and right, get, get ice cream. But in Clearwater, and I'm glad you brought that up. In Clearwater, so people understand my job and and, and the inner working. Clearwater was the best place to go and sit and have meals because the Philly people were there, scouts, whatever. And you you always picked up if you had to go to one spring training site. The Philly lunchroom was the best place to be. In, I'd have in to clear agree with that. In clear I've been in all of them too, and I don't think there's any doubt there that's the best one. And, and then you get Jim Fergosi stories. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, I, I I used to go to Wyoming with Jim on a trip with Tracy Ringles being some other people, and uh, yeah, Wyomania. So Wyomania, and uh, <laughs> we'll have to do a show from Wyomania one day, and. Um, <laughs> The, the highlight of Wild Mania for all the 20 years of its uh, inception to now, 21, I think it is, was when when Jim would be there and he would be up early and you made sure you went down and had coffee at like 6 a.m. or whatever in the hotel because his stories were off the charts. Uh, I'm sure you had that experience as well. Oh, yeah. Well, I was actually first, uh, first with Jim in the Angel organization. Oh, right. He, he was the big league manager and he came down to instructional league and uh, get this for a, for a after work job. My job was to drive he and Chuck Cotier around Phoenix and Mesa. Oh my gosh. You must have more yeah. stories than anyone. Yeah. Oh yeah. So just to even be in the car with him and in the, in the, uh, in the night spots was really pretty cool. And a lot of, a lot of stories. Well, people don't, you know, as time goes on, and, and again, most of these stories we can't repeat, but they're fun yeah. stories. And uh, he told me a Roger Maris story that might have been the greatest ever. And uh, also his former owner, Gene Autry, um, you know, who who had he loved the, Jim. He loved Jim. And uh, Jim was his favorite player of all time. He, he, he really did. And, and they had a relationship that was off the charts. And that's what made him a great manager as well. And speaking of that, I, I want to ask your opinion of this because you know him as a player and whatever. I'm a little surprised with what's going on in baseball with some of these guys getting GM jobs. And again, I'm not running anyone down, but you know, I know one team has a guy who played college lacrosse, never played baseball, president of baseball operations, and you go on and on. And and um, how come how come Ruben Amaro is not getting another shot either as a manager? Um, because I think he'd be a great manager as well, but bilingual, so many other things, and uh, me too, and and also or as a GM again. Uh, what's your read? I don't know. Situation? I mean, I don't know where you could check more boxes than him. He's you know born in born in a ballpark basically. He he was a big league player. Uh, he was a you know front office guy. He's been on television. Uh, he was a coach. <clears throat> Pardon me, guys. He um, he's a Stanford educated guy, very smart, bilingual. I, I don't know where you could check more boxes than that. He he he'd be a great manager. He would be a in great today's manager. game, especially. He would be, and uh, I'm going to push for that one of my columns. But also, I remember one little thing, and and maybe you you, you can point to this. When I was covering the Mets, I was on a Mets road trip with them in Arizona. And this was in Mickey Callaway's days, and 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 um, the team was just Ruben saw it coming years before anybody else. And I've been I've been on this I've been on this uh, you know um, this mission 
to uh, improve base running. But the Mets were during this time they were this this was when Ruben was the coach with the Mets. They were just terribly terrible base runners, and uh, and now everybody's a terrible base runner pretty much. And um, but I remember Ruben in in Chase Field. He went. He was so fed up with it that he he talked to Mickey one day and they they didn't have batting practice when they had the field allocation. He took the entire team, pitchers too, uh, base to base to break down what you do at first base, what you do at second base, what you do at third, blah, 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 secondary leads, all that stuff. So everything else we just talked about from a management perspective, but he also, the the intricacies of the game, which are being lost, it was great just to listen in on that. I mean, I, I kind of listened in a little bit on that. It was fantastic. So that's just a little aside to uh, where we are as a game now when they – when you see the base running and they have to change the rules that, so guys can steal bases because they can't they can't run bases. But that's well, it's it's a definitely a different game. And you know, you alluded to uh, you know some of the in, base, inexperience or baseball inexperience of of uh, general managers and so forth. Uh, uh, kind of a quick little funny story here. I helped coach the Ocean City High School team. Oh, good. I've been doing it for three years, and the first year, we won the state championship, and not because I was there, it's because we had good players. Sure. But but I joke to people like Charlie Kerfeld and, and a lot of others, Pat Gillick, a lot of others in the game, ah, oh, I think I'll probably get some managerial offers now because I was a high school baseball coach. <laughs> If I didn't have gray hair, I might have a shot. That's what Gillick told me. Arguably, hey, and if you if you uh, take a driveline course, you know you you you're in. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's the way it goes now. But uh, before I throw you back to Dave, um, I I want want you to tell one other story about that. I think it was the Tommy Green no hitter and the special call he got from the prime. Oh, Minister. that's a great story. Yeah, go ahead. Yes. So Tommy Green was a starting pitcher for the Phillies. I want to say the year might have been that might have been ninety three too. Uh, I don't think it was ninety three. Okay, I want to say it was ninety one or two. Okay. So we had a Thursday afternoon game in Montreal at Olympic Stadium, and by then the interest was at an all time low. The Expos hadn't gotten good yet. They did a couple years later, but there were probably seven or 8,000 people at the game. You could, you could hear their conversations in the stands. Well, Tommy pitches a no-hitter. Now, he's a great guy, but a little naive once in a while. So when the game's over and he did all the TV interviews, et cetera, the, he came in the clubhouse and the guy's – you know, doused him with beer and champagne and the whole deal. And Roger McDowell was on our team. He he masterminded this, so I know it wasn't 93. Oh, okay. That's a good point. And, yeah. and uh, Roger got one of the, the clubhouse staffers in Montreal are all French Canadians. Yep. So he got one of the guys, not a kid, but like a, you know, mid-20s, maybe late-20s uh, man, 
who was French Canadian, to go in the back room and to call the clubhouse number. And he got on there and they got Tommy Green on the phone and told him it was the Prime Minister of Canada calling <laughs> to congratulate him. And he was just as reverent and polite as he possibly could be and thanked him for taking time out of his schedule to, to call, et cetera. And, and then finally the guy looked out from around the corner where he was like shining shoes <laughs> and spoke out to him. And that's when green knew he had been had. Oh, that's, that's what keeps it fun. Do you have time for the West Helm story or not? Go yeah, ahead, Dave. Dave. Yeah. Hey, I want you to share one thing first before that. But you, you know, with all your jobs you've had, you've been that boy, director of clubhouse, traveling secretary. But after that 2008 World Series party, you mentioned David Montgomery. He gave you a special assignment. What was that assignment? Uh, that was that was really special. He said, Frank, I need somebody to get the trophy to the parade. So I lived in South Jersey at the time and a number of us did jimmy rollins charlie Manuel, you know quite a few players some other staffers so i said well david i said i would have to take it home with me because i live you know i live over in new jersey he goes that's fine so he said uh, i know i can trust you to get it back here for the parade tomorrow so we had had an organizational party the night before. So there was like a, a night off after winning the World Series where we just had a private dinner party. And then the next day was the big parade in Philadelphia. So I had my two kids with me at the at the party that night, and uh, they were going to be in the parade with me the next day. So we rode home, and the trophy sat between the two of them in the back seat. And uh, I knocked on my neighbor's door below me. I lived in a in a condo, and and they opened the door, and I was just standing there holding it, which they just couldn't believe their eyes. You know, they were they were taking pictures of it. And then the next day, uh, uh, I sat in in the middle of the kitchen kitchen table while the kids ate ate their breakfast around it, and that was our Christmas card that year. Nice, and uh, it was a, it was a great thrill and an honor that David would would ask me to do that. You know, he trusted you. That's the he, he did. That's it. Well, we'll let you. We got Wes coming on later today, but I'll uh, go ahead and unleash on Wes Helms right here. What do you got for us? So Wes was with us one year, and and he lived in Birmingham area. He may still live over there. I don't know. Yes, yeah. But uh, we were ending this regular season, and we were with the regular season. We were on the road to end the year in Atlanta and Miami. So Wes said, uh, hey, Frank, he goes, uh, I got an awful lot of excess luggage for my wife and kids and I. Can I bring them on the plane? And I said, well, how much are you talking about? And he said, because, you know, back then we had a dozen extra players and things like that. And a lot of a lot of guys flying out of Atlanta. The you know, the last day of the season, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> so I, I couldn't just say yes to the whole deal, but I said, what are you talking about? He goes, I got seven or eight big suitcases. I said, we'll make it work. So he brings the stuff to the ballpark. We go on the road. 
I'm sorry. Uh, I said that Atlanta, we, our first stop is Miami. So we get to Miami and, and Wes just kept all the bags in, in his room. And then on getaway day, he sent all his luggage down. So I'm down there and, you know, checking off luggage. Now you can't really get a count on the bags because you never know when somebody's wife's going to join them and then they've got a bag, et cetera, et cetera. But what I did do was I just, I would scratch off the name. So if, if I saw one Wes Helms bag, as far as I was concerned, all of Helms bags were down. So the truck pulls up, they take all the luggage, they take it to the airport. After the game, we're going to fly to Atlanta. I get out to the airport and the Marlins are leaving also. And our bags are on two carts right next to each other. Trouble. So so now I don't think much of that, but we, we get our plane loaded and we fly out. The Marlins get their plane loaded. They fly out. We get to Atlanta and my assistant and I, we we're going to, Chop Steakhouse out in Buckhead, one of my all-time favorite spots because we got in there early enough on a Sunday and we're at dinner and Wes is calling me. He goes, I'm missing one of my bags. I'm missing one of my bags. And I'm like, oh, it's got to be there. So I've talked to the bellman and they can't find it. And so now I'm thinking, well, it's it's got to be in, in the wrong room. And that happens occasionally. So... Anyway, I said, what's the bag look like? And he says, uh, it was an old Florida Marlins bag. And right away, I'm like, "Uh uh-huh. So I know what happened. There was some sort of baggage handler that just happened to see Helm's bag and thought it was in the wrong pile and pulled it from our load and put it on the Marlins plane. So now the Marlins were going to Washington. So I called John Silverman, their equipment guy, you know, like three hours later. And I said, John, I hate to bother you. I said, but we're, we're missing a suitcase. And I, I'm thinking it might be with you. And he goes, what is it? I said, it's a Wes Helms Marlin suitcase. And he says, well, he was number 18. We don't have a number 18. He goes, let me go down to Bellman's storage closet and take a look. And he went down there and sure enough, there it was. <clears throat> so I said, he goes, what do you want me to do with it? I said, well, you're coming to Philly next. Just bring it to Philly with you. So Wes got seven of his eight bags that he wanted. He still had to haul the other one back at the end of the year. Oh, that's great. So that was in his wife's bag. Stuff I don't know who, whose stuff was in it, but he wasn't, he wasn't real happy about it at the time, but I'm sure he'll laugh about it now. We'll get him on that. I'll pass it back to you. Kevin always asks one question at the end, and it's a, it's a great question for all of our guests. And looking forward to your answer on this, Frank. Yeah, before okay. I ask that question, I just thought of one other thing I want to ask about because he was such a uh, a big part of the Phillies and, and also scouted. But – uh, Dave Hollins, what was uh, that relationship like with him? When he was playing or, or now? Or whenever, yeah. Whatever, because you know. he's, that's like two different people. 
Exactly. And I think his, the most, what was his nickname? Was his nickname Head or something? The nickname was Head. His head is kind of large. Actually, his hat size was normal, but it looks big. <laughs> and it's it's kind of squared off too. Yeah, it's square. That's right. <clears throat> and he was a he was a pretty tough guy from Buffalo, New York. You know, he and he endured a lot of hard winters up there and uh, he'd fight anybody. I'll tell you real quick on him. When in Atlanta, there used to be this shoe store that sold all these crazy shoes. Oh, like, the players loved that place. Yeah, Freedman's. Freedman's. And it was like from the disco era back in the 70s. You well, know? I, co- I covered the NBA as well many years, and uh, that was the place. Yeah. Well, the, the players would go out there, and they would get these ridiculous shoes, and they'd paint them all up, and then they'd hide the guy's regular shoes and uh, make the players wear these, like, big platform heels like, you know, we might have worn back in the mid-70s or something. Jim Cott would have worn. Oh, yeah, absolutely he would have. But uh, but uh, Hollins, he failed to see the humor in that. And so he basically said, I'm not wearing them. And uh, he goes, where are, my, where are my shoes? And I said, well, they're in the they're in, in the truck. Well, he basically threw everything off the back of the truck till he came across them. He was by no, and there was no player. They were mad at him, but none of them had enough nerve to really say it to him. They were mad to each other about him, but exactly. they never said anything to Dave. No, they didn't want to, you don't want to confront the bull. No, but he's as, he's as nice, nice and gentle as can be nowadays but that's why i said that's two two different players that's a great point because he yeah i remember as a player for the media he was a bit intimidating too oh yeah yeah he had that locked jaw look and yep hey he could be like that with me i've seen it (laughs) oh i believe it i believe it but uh this this leads right into our next question because uh we uh we'd love to get everybody's opinion on this and you can think about it for a second there's no uh there's no rush on this one. Um, it, it, and, and you've dealt with so many players. Um, so, so the question is simple. Uh, to you, Frank Kopenbarger, what, what does it mean to be a ball player? Simply, what does it mean to be a ball player? And, and in your own words, from your own experiences, just, just throw it out there what you think. Well, I wasn't a – well, I was a ball player for one at bat. <laughs> but I wasn't a ball player. But I think to be a ball player is a is is a real uh, place of high regard, and it, it should be. If it isn't, it should be. And you know, it, right down to even how you look, uh, whether it's a hair, maybe a little bit ridiculously too much, or or your uniform, uh, uh, kind of what I would say, old, not old school anymore, sort of not uniform anymore, if you want to use the u- word uniform. But I think, I think, uh, I mean, when I was a kid, you know, and I'd get baseball cards and I'd look at these guys and I, they just meant so much to me and I didn't even know them now, you know, I know a lot of those guys now, but, but I just feel like, it's a real 
you're you're lucky. I mean, you're privileged. Even if you make it to the major leagues, you would only halfway fill up a, a, a modern stadium. You know, 20, 21,000 people have ever appeared in as little as one big league game. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, when you when you open up a ballpark like tonight in Philadelphia, there'll be 43,000 people there. And, and if you took half of them out of there and it looked like a bad crowd, that would be one person representing everyone that ever played the game. I think it's very, very special. That's great. That's great. Go ahead, Dave. No, Frank, you so much. Frank, thanks so much for coming on today. And we want to have you back too, because I know we we probably got a, a good dozen to 15 episodes in you without even trying. Um, I, I, I got a bunch of stories. <laughs> yeah, and you've entertained me off the air too. I've, I've appreciated our conversations as well. well. Look yeah. forward to many more. I want to thank you for, for coming on Coach and Kernan today, episode 279. Also want to thank our 50,000 subscribers now. Keep supporting us. Uh, we're keeping, we're going to keep this uh, production group going forward. We've got great things on the horizon. For us, 74 countries now are tuning in, so they've heard the great stories of Frank Kopenbarger as well. And uh, thanks, special thanks to our star of the show, Kevin Kern and AMBS. Thanks for bringing what you do to the show and the network. Um, always bring out the best in our guests, and we appreciate uh, also what you do with Ball 9. Please support them as well over there, our brothers over there. Two great stories every week. Make sure you tune in. And uh, with that, uh, episode 279, Frank and Kevin, thanks so much for what you did today. All right. It was fun. Thank you. A lot of fun being with you guys. We'll have you back another time. And hang on with us for a second here as we close out. But our audience, thanks, 50,000. Make sure you give Kevin five stars today. Try that in a small town